Today's scripture reading is from Matthew chapter 7, verses 28 and 29. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to Christ. Well, good morning to you. Uh, I'm not Scott Sauls. I'm Stacy Croft. I have more hair, and I will say that publicly. Um, I uh, love that man, uh, so we do jest a lot. But uh, I am the lead pastor of uh, Christ Pres Second Location, CPC in town, just down Hillsborough Road. And uh, greetings from them. Uh, once a quarter or so, we Scott and I kind of swap back and forth and drive uh, down the road. So if you see, if you were on your way here and you saw some guy with this microphone flying down uh, in, through Green Hills, that was me. Uh, I don't have a bumper sticker that says you can call this if I drove horribly. So that's your fault. Um, but I'm so glad to be here with you all this morning. It's great to, uh, and I get to sum up the Sermon on the Mount. And hasn't it been an easy ride? Um, no, it hasn't. Uh, I will say, the uh, Sermon on the Mount does uh, a lot of things, and the one thing it doesn't do is make it easy. Uh, it is an upheaval of, I don't know about you, but even as one who's been teaching and preaching at, uh, at in town every week, uh, it has been an upheaval of my soul and uh, my heart, and uh, it, it really is that, and <clears throat> it does exactly what it should do. Uh, even in the last few weeks as we've looked at just excruciating, uncomfortable passages about heaven and hell, it does beg the question of us, and especially even if you're here visiting this morning as we get a lot of visitors at, at InTown as well, uh, that who has authority? You know, who, who are you listening to? Uh, I remember being in London. I don't know if you've been to London before, but London has a, a specific place called Hyde Park, and in this park... Uh, usually on Sundays, I'm sure it happens other days, you can go and listen to all sorts of public speakers. Uh, they'll have crates or platforms, uh, something of that nature. And you walk in, <clears throat> everybody kind of has their own station, place that they're standing and proclaiming something or other that's very important to them. You know, you'll hear political activists uh, of sorts, whether we're waving flags and having people surround with cheers and chants and fists. You'll hear religious extremists, um, <clears throat> some of which I remember standing uh, in front of and, and saying, hey, can I ask you a question? And them completely ignoring me and looking over me, <laughs> not caring that I was there, just wanting to make their voice known. Uh, you can hear anything. You can stand up yourself and actually grab a box or a crate or platform and express your um, heart, mind, soul, whatever's going on in you. But what's interesting is when you walk in, where do you gravitate? It's kind of like a, a physical internet in a sense. I mean, isn't that what we do on the internet? We go to our computer and we search for sources of authority that actually fit our components, right? And the sad thing about it, in some sense, we usually only look up things that are going to bolster our own authority. We live in a, actually a very interesting cultural narrative on authority. Because if you think about it, all of us work and seek for sources that say, I'm an expert, right? Or scholars say this. And we look for those kind of things to bolster us to actually feel like we have sources of authority in our corner. And yet all of us want to be our own authority. 
We all are grasping to maintain positions of authority. So how does that fit together? It's kind of this strange cauldron that we are in. And, and as you think about what Jesus has done over these last several weeks as we've unpacked it, you have to ask the question, what makes him different? What makes him different as a source of authority? You know, he talked about character. He, he's talked about things of, of, of religious nature, of praying and being a hypocrite, or giving and being a hypocrite. But then he gets to this uncomfortable end about heaven and hell and, 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 and exclusion. And it begins, and it should, even if you say, I follow Jesus, it should make you squirm. It, it should make you say, okay, how much do I really believe that you are the authority? That you have a foothold and an authority in my life. I mean, let's be honest for a second. So many of us have actual narratives of our own lives of things going on, whether uh, as I've just even recently talked to certain people about whether their marriages are falling apart or they're actually students who are being bullied or not able to actually connect in schools. How, how do those real narratives of people's lives actually fit with Jesus being the authority? Is he really authoritative? Can we sit at his feet and say, I'll follow you? Or is it kind of like, hey, two-thirds of that sermon was great. That works. I'll just kind of bug out for the rest of it. So I think this morning we need to ask that question. This is just one question I want to ask, and I think it's answered in two ways. That Jesus has wisdom unlike any other. He has wisdom in what he said And he has humility in how he said it. Simple. Wisdom and humility. Wisdom in what he said, humility in how he said it. If you read even these two verses, which is nice to have just two verses, boom, right? There it is. It says this, and Jesus finished these sayings. Crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority. And then there's a negation. Not like the scribes. There's a reason for that. Because even the word astonished means there's a different kind of strength behind it. The Greek word, it's emphasizing strength different than any other. What makes Jesus different than any other? Isn't that what they would actually go on that mountainside and actually ask? They were asking the question, okay, what are you going to do with the law of Moses? They've been living in a system for ages. In fact, centuries where the scribes and Pharisees and religious rulers were taking the law, those things, and trying to interpret it. And creating a system in a world where they could maintain themselves as the people of God. But what happened over time was taking that law, that rule of life, they would take it and they would make a system over here where they could become elitist. Notice that there's even in this implication, and you can read it in other places, as their scribes. It was almost like an us-them. The scribes have the law. They know what it says. They tell us what to do. We're over here. We're not in the law. We're not elitists. We try and do what the scribes tell us to do. You get it? And isn't that what they wanted? A system to live in, but not like it. Why was Jesus different? He had a wisdom differential. You see, wisdom is different than just following the rules, right? Wisdom is applying the law and the rules when it doesn't fit. Not everything in life is yes or no, black or white, this door or that door. It is easy for us and we long for ourselves to have a system to read everything in the Sermon on the Mount and say, I can, I can do that. 
Can I do that? Can I fit that in my system? We want that. And we can love authority so much to where it gives us some sort of rule, but wisdom is different. What Jesus is doing is different. He applies it in a differential that goes beyond that. That you can lust or not lust, but here you're an adulterer. You can be angry, you can get mad or not mad, but you're a murderer. He goes beyond. He levels the playing field. He does it in a way that you can't escape it. It, it, For the first time, they're sitting on a mountainside, and, and try and imagine this with me. For us, we're reading this as 21st century people in America where they were going on a mountainside where this man didn't have a degree. He didn't come from any sort of pedigree of, of pedagogy. This is a carpenter out of nowhere speaking the law and saying things as we would even hear today of scholars say this. He says, you've heard it said, but I say to you, And then he proceeds to unpack and apply the Old Testament in ways that they thought, I have never heard the rules put that way. I always thought I had to play nice by the rules. But what he does in his authority is say, you cannot escape it. They wanted to fit a system into themselves so they could operate, and that's exactly what we want to do. One of my favorite uh, authors, G.K. Chesterton, who was kind of a precursor to C.S. Lewis in a sense, wrote this in his book, Orthodoxy, about what it means to be a mad man. If you actually want to go mad, uh, go crazy. Listen to what he says. To accept everything is an exercise. To understand everything is a strain. The poet only desires exaltation and expansion, a world to stretch himself in. The poet only asks to get his head into the heavens. It is the logician who seeks to get the heavens into his head, and it is his head that splits. The madman is not the only one who has lost his reason. The madman is one who has lost everything except his reason. Do you see what he's saying? He's not saying reason is not a healthy thing. What he's saying, though, is is we are wanting to fit a system of rules to take the Sermon on the Mount and say, I can do it and get into heaven ourselves. As much as we think, Jesus is doing something different. He's saying, it leads you to the end of yourself. You cannot complete it. It goes deeper than the rules. It's more than just the everydayness. It goes into parts of you and the character of you that you cannot express, explain, or hide from. It should, if you read it, unpack things and cause you to see things of yourself that you cannot get out of the way of. When I was growing up in Texas, my family, we had a house that was built in the 70s. And just like many of houses built in the 70s, it had an entire wall of mirrors in the main room. Beautiful thing. Uh, And my parents' door to their bedroom was actually one of those mirrors. So can you imagine as a little kid, like waking up in the night and needing my parents, I was like, oh, this is like a cruel joke, you know, can't find them. So, but no one, it was the worst house to play any games in because people come over and play hide and seek. It's like, oh, there you are. See ya. It's good. Yeah. Can we go somewhere else to play? Like literally, it was awful. And But that's really the exposure that we receive here. 
The the, the Sermon on the Mount is to be not just one single thing you look at. In fact, James, uh, the, the brother of Jesus, draws this out and he says, it's a mirror that should expose every part of you. He wants to transform your character, not just momentary things. The application of this law of the entire Old Testament is towards your character being changed. And how do you change your character? He's not about just you changing a couple things. Philosophy and teaching can do one thing. It can say, look, you need to change your attitude. You can change your behavior. But what Jesus is doing, he's saying he's getting into the parts and places of you that you hate seeing because you cannot run away from what you are as a murderer, adulterer, someone who is a hypocrite, or someone who may think that they are a Christian and may have it wrong. He doesn't let us escape. That is scary. And it forced them. Can you imagine the astonishment to them in that? Because think about this. If he really is a wise teacher, if he's really that wise, and it leaves them astonished in strength, wouldn't it have footholds in the reality, not just of being exposed of things, but the reality of our narratives that we all live in? Wouldn't His authority express and explain things that are going on in you and around you that are so difficult because there has to be a wisdom differential? If Jesus doesn't have it, then what makes Him any good for us as a teacher? Uh, Just this last couple days ago, my two-year-old son Cole uh, busted his chin wide open. And, you know, he was playing and bouncing and happy, whatever, and he busted his chin open and we made the trip to the ER, and I literally, I have two boys, which means if you add up their ages, I've been to the ER that many times. Like, so, like, I'm very familiar, very comfortable, you know, the seats, I even know, I'm sure I have, a, you know, a plaque on one of them, but the, Cole, my son, his chin was bleeding, and, you know, he got to a point where he wasn't crying anymore, and he actually fell asleep at one point, I'm sure the trauma or whatever, but he fell asleep. We get in the ER, and <clears throat> the doctor is, is so, it was actually pretty funny. He's like, well, I, I, it couldn't go any further, you know, so here he is, like, chin open, and he's like, it went as far as it could go. It's like, that's encouraging, thanks. Um, well, then all of a sudden, Cole starts to realize, you know, he's waking up, and he's looking around, and he's thinking, this is not normal to me. You know, you can kind of tell, it's a little uneasy. And this boy, who's actually doing just fine, Uh, I end up having to, my wife is holding his arms down while I pin his legs and the doctor glues his chin back together. Now he's crying so hard, it's one of those cries, you know, the silent cry, like, I can't even get his breath out. And his tears, I mean, it's killer. I mean, even thinking about it now, it's like I'm pressing my son's legs down. So what, what is going on? Okay, I could have easily said, son's doing, he's doing great, honey. I'm like, He's fine. He can live with this. Like, this is fine his whole life. You know, like, he'll heal up. I mean, he's not crying, right? He didn't seem like he's hurting. He's happy. He's, like, he's sleeping now. Look, don't wake him up, you know? But what would I be doing? I may be living within a set of rules, but would that be wise for my son? What does he really need? He needs not only medical care, he needs a wisdom differential to hold him down in order that he can actually receive the right care. Not just put a Band-Aid on it, 
but to actually have it glued together, have surgical strike in his chin to heal it, to remove any sort of uh, bacteria or anything that would cause infection. Like that is the application of God's wisdom differential in Jesus. What he's explaining to them when he unpacks and opens their hearts and it's revealed to them and everyone else, that is what he's doing for us. He is a surgeon of a different level. Notice even in this, Jesus uses the medical language to describe those who do not know they're sick. Who is it? It's the scribe and the Pharisees. In other parts of the gospel and narratives, which if you're unfamiliar with the gospels, they are the narratives of Jesus. He is describing those scribes as people who don't think they need a doctor. And yet Jesus with this sermon comes to show a wisdom differential that we must have. And he doesn't throw out the rules. He applies them in the most beautiful, tangible, difficult way. Because otherwise, we wouldn't be changed. Look, you may be here this morning, and you may have been through uh, some sort of, um, even if you've gone through high school, college, maybe you have your master's. I don't know if you've thought about this, but when they say they're astonished by his teaching, pretty much everybody in this room has a degree more than Jesus. Do you realize in terms of like on your wall, you have a master's degree or a high school diploma. Jesus didn't have that. And yet, people of the greatest authority from that time till even now are bending the knee toward him. I think one of the best ways somebody put it was Sheldon Van Auken, who was an author who wrote of his conversion in a sense of, of kind of studying Jesus and studying Christians. And in a severe mercy, he says this, and I think it's very well put. This is what he says. What was so odd was that quite a lot of people, not just sheep, but highly intelligent people, did apparently believe it. T.S. Eliot, for instance. In fact, quite a few physicists, the very last people one would expect to be taken by it. Philosophers, too. Was it possible? Was there any chance that there was more to it than I had thought? Were these actual intellectuals? And it wasn't just a matter of them keeping their childhood faith without examination either. Some of them, intelligent people too, were actually converts from atheism or agnosticism. If minds like St. Augustine's and Newman's and Lewis's could wrestle with Christianity and become a fortress of the faith, it had to be taken seriously. Shouldn't the wisdom of Jesus and His authority cause us to actually think about His authority in and of itself. These people that are bowing the knee, maybe you're here today and you would even say you follow Jesus. Does it actually have footholds in your life of His authority towards your character and towards your circumstances? Does it really cause you to approach your friendships differently? To walk in the office and actually see what you do differently? the way you care about your neighbor, your wife, your children? Do you actually see it changing the way that you, you listen to His authority? Because for Van Auken here, it had to be structurally plausible to say, okay, if Christians of this intelligence actually are going to bow the knee towards that, would there be any plausibility toward that? If you're here especially this morning, and welcome if you are, 
And you're like, where is Matthew in the Sermon on the Mount? Praise be to God. I'm, I'm glad you asked that. This is not a place to know it all. It's a place to say, wait, wait, who is the authority speaking of that? Because just, just if you know where Matthew 5 through 7 is in the Bible, doesn't mean you're bowing the knee to anything. Shouldn't we ask that question of his wisdom? Because what he said was incredibly powerful. And here's what's amazing. It wasn't just what he said, it was how he said it. His humility was what drew so many to himself. I want to read a passage that was pretty close after this in Matthew chapter 13. Another place where people were astonished, but listen to their conclusion. Matthew chapter 13, verse 53 says this, And when Jesus had finished these parables, he went away from there, and coming to his hometown, he taught them in their synagogue, so that they were astonished and said, Where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Is, is not this the carpenter's son? Is not, this, not his mother called Mary? And are not his brothers James, Joseph, and Simon, and Judas? And are, all not, all, are not all his sisters with us? Where then did this man get all these things? And they took offense at him. It says they actually took offense at him. They were astonished and took offense. Why in the world? It would say right after this that he's not accepted in his hometown and he refused to actually do mighty works for them. Here's the difference between the scribes and Jesus is that he didn't use his authority to bully them in their faith. The scribes were constantly taking the law in the Old Testament and lording it over them, making heavy burdens, even as Jesus says. So you must, you must keep this. Look at us, we're keeping this. You must keep this. Jesus never does that. He fulfills it. He keeps it. He lives it out. But here's what's fascinating. He does it all through humility. He makes all these bold, exclusive truth claims, and yet all the people you would think would be repulsed by it are the people who come and eat with him and touch him and live near him and follow him. Look, I was reading recently a, an article in The Atlantic. It was a really fascinating article, very recent, written by a psych professor at uh, the Naval Academy. And even different than some other academies, uh, the Naval Academy, thinking of it even you know, the military academies of structure and order, this um, article was titled <clears throat> um, How uh, When Mentorship Goes Off Track. So think about that, when mentorship goes off track. It was done in an interview format, and this is what the interviewer actually asked. What is the most, this is the very end of the article, after given all this litany of things. What is the most effective way to approach building these relationships of mentorship, especially with people who are different from you? The psych professor replied this, I really encourage and counsel humility. And this often comes up in the case of mentorship. You need to really be careful about approaching someone with a different set of experiences from your own, with a sense of humility and a learning orientation. And for me... That goes beyond situations where there is conflict or dysfunction. I would say that humility is one of the hallmarks of really good mentorship in general. Look, this is not a you know, 
fabricated article. This is just an interview of a natural characteristic that is necessary in order to have a mentor-mentoree relationship. Humility. And Jesus Himself does this in the most profound way because He does it with ways that He, as a pra- instead of just saying, putting all the burdens on the practitioners, which most religions do. Isn't that a difference in Christianity and in anything else? The burden lies on the practitioner, but Jesus Himself never removes Himself from underneath His own sermon. Every letter of it, every word, every part that relays to the heart, not just the rules. Jesus submits Himself. He puts Himself under it. And the people were not just astonished at what He said. They were astonished with how He lived. Think about this. Two of the biggest problems that people have with Christianity today is authority and freedom. That cultural narrative. Okay, how can someone really have authority? And I was talking to my 15-year-old nephew about this. I, said, I asked him, I said, if you were hearing a sermon from me on authority, what would you and your friends think about? What would you want address. He said, every time we think of authority, we think of figures. And we think of a figure, and we think of our freedom being curtailed by it. But what if Jesus is something different here? What if, what if the one who's actually making some incredible, probably the greatest, and you've heard four sermons that should make you squirm on exclusive truth, on heaven and hell, does it get any harder to sit with? And yet, He provides the greatest freedom in life. Could it be that this figure in His humility doesn't just show wisdom in what He said, but how He did it by actually saying there are exclusive truth claims, there is authority, and yet He lives it out. He does it Himself. If you read the Sermon on the Mount, don't you, aren't you brought, you should be, brought to the end of yourself? And it should cause us all to ask the question, then how is this done? How can authority and freedom go together? How can we actually display the true gospel, the good news that this is to be to people in this city who may even be in this room asking, okay, I'm curious about this. This is what Jesus is getting at. He's saying there has to be an authority because we're all living by some rule. Here's the ultimate authority. And yet, here's the ultimate truth of how it's proclaimed and fulfilled in me. It's not just laid on the practitioner. It's kept by the one who lays out the sermon itself. See, what drew, think about this, who were the people that went to Jesus again? They were the people that were literally entitled sinners in the culture. Shouldn't that be the people who follow Jesus? Shouldn't that be us? Shouldn't there be people attracted? If they really are attracted to the true gospel, it should be both wisdom and humility. It should never be just one or the other. It's both. Sheldon Van Auken says this again beautifully. He says what really drew him to Christianity itself, to who Jesus was, was this. Listen. These were our first friends, close friends, 
More to the point, perhaps, all five were keen, deeply committed Christians, but we liked them so much that we forgave them for it. We began, hardly knowing we were doing it, to revise our opinions, not of Christianity, but of Christians. Our fundamental assumption, which we had been pleased to regard as an intelligent insight, had been that all Christians were necessarily stuffy, hidebound, or stupid. People to keep one's distance from. We had kept our distance so successfully, indeed, that we didn't know anything about Christians. Now that assumption soundlessly collapsed. The sheer quality of the Christians we met at Oxford shattered our stereotype. And thenceforth, a reference in a book or a conversation to someone's being a Christian called up an entirely new image. Listen to this. Moreover, the astonishing, even the language, fact sank home. Our own contemporaries could be at once highly intelligent, civilized, witty, fun to be with, and Christian. Are we reflecting, not just knowing a bunch about what Jesus said, but are we reflecting ourselves submitted to an authority that's greater than our own? Do you want to know the link, really, between wisdom and humility? It's sitting right in front of you at this table. You know the link between wisdom and humility that separates Jesus from anyone else is the word fulfillment. It's the fact that he wasn't just the wisest and he wasn't the most humble in character, but that he fulfilled every single aspect of it. If you look at this table and when you come forward and you actually have the bread and wine touch your lips, you must realize that your coming to this table has nothing to do with your authority. There is no foothold of authority that you have can bring you to this table. It is only whose blood and body? Jesus, right? It is His that was taken. And in the same regard, the only way we can approach this table is in humility because the way this table was set wasn't just here's some bread and wine. It was this is my body, this is my blood. Jesus' body and blood, not my body and blood, not your body and blood. It is His humility that calls us forward to surround this table, to let it touch our lips, and to say, I can submit to real authority that doesn't oppress me, but frees me to live, to look back. We started here. We ended here in the Sermon on the Mount, but what happens with these two verses? It shoots us right back to the beginning to say, how are you going to live following the authority now? Now that you can live in light of the freedom that it has been finished. That your character and mine may be transformed. Let's pray. God of heaven, thank you for being so wise that in my own arrogance of having a master's in theology, MDiv, it is nothing compared to your infinite wisdom in differential. 
Lord, and the fact that you humbled yourself in your great authority and wisdom, not to oppress, but to bring me into it so that my character might be transformed. Would I begin again at the Beatitudes? Would I begin again at Matthew 5 and read it with eyes of joy and delight? And would we come to this table now and be reminded of your wisdom and humility laid before us in bread and wine? We pray this in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.